All right, last podcast of the year. Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of the Writers Panel. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for sticking with it all year. It was a weird one. Um, you know, this is the year the show went independent, um, meaning I do everything, uh, and it's a lot of work. And it's not always fun work. Like, editing stinks. It's a pain. Um, but I, I think I figured some things out. Hopefully the the levels are good now. Um, but, you know, it's still, it's still work. And if you enjoy the podcast and would like to support this work, uh, please go over to benblacker.substack.com. It's where I generally post information about the show as well as, you know, weekly newsletters about uh, the business and process of writing, the stuff I've learned from talking to, you know, 5,000 writers over the past 12 years or whatever it is. Um, the conversations are always great. The conversations on the podcast are always terrific. I'm always so glad I have them. And today's doubleheader is no exception. Um, we start off with a really great chat with the co-creators of For All Mankind, Matt Walpert and Ben Nadivi, who created it with Ron Moore, uh, who was on the podcast last year. Um, but when I talked to Ron, I hadn't seen the show. <laughs> so talking to uh, Ben and Matt is a little more informed. I also want to thank my friend Zoe for her help with some of the questions because they were great. Um, but it's a really terrific conversation about how For All Mankind is made and um, how choices are made on the show the you know unusual structure season to season with the big time jumps and everything um it was really cool i i learned a lot as i always do also stuff about production which was fascinating to me um including you know when something works uh and when you have to be sure that something works or how you can make something work uh hopefully in editing anyway it's a really good conversation um with those guys and that is followed by another conversation uh, with Brian Helgeland, who has a new movie out called Finest Kind, which he wrote and directed. But you also know Brian. Um, you know, he's been a screenwriter for, God, 30, almost 40 years. He won an Oscar for L.A. Confidential. And in fact, Brian tells me a story about pitching L.A. Confidential, um, a sequel to L.A. Confidential with Russell Crowe and how there are no takers. It's it's bananas um, that a guy at his level for a thing like that can't get it off the ground um, and the cast that he had involved. But you'll hear that story in the second half of this uh, doubleheader. Really great conversation. So that's right after the For All Mankind guys. Um, speaking of great conversations, every month through the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com, we have a Zoom Q&A, a live Zoom Q&A with a professional writer um, where you ask the Qs and they provide the As. Uh, we just did one this month with uh, Mark Guggenheim. It was, like all of them, incredibly inspiring, um, incredibly helpful in a practical way. Um, and um, like they're always just really a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be doing those every month through 2024 now. Um, so I, I, if you are a writer, an emerging writer, or even an established writer, you know, I get so much out of these every single time we have one of the conversations, please consider becoming a paid subscriber to the newsletter, benblacker.substack.com. It's only $6 a month, um, and that gives you access to the live Zoom Q&As uh, 
as well as the recordings of those. Um, if you are, you know, in an inconvenient time zone and still want to hear them, they're great listens. Um, and they are, as of yet, I haven't put out any as writer's panel episodes. We'll see what happens if I ever get into a real bind. But, you know, we've now got a dozen of them banked, including uh, Robert Cargill, Jane Espenson, Akela Cooper. Like, it's just a, a rogues gallery of <laughs> terrific writers. Um, so please go to benblacker.substack.com and become a paid subscriber. Show your support for this podcast, for the newsletter, and join us at those Q&As. I love hearing your questions. All right, here is the uh, conversation with the co-creators of For All Mankind. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! Ben and Matt, thank you guys for being here. I'm going to have you introduce yourselves on the podcast. Uh, let the folks know who you are, where they've seen your names before. You can tag team this. And uh, I work with a partner too, so I know how tedious it is to tell your origin story over and over. So I'm going to let you two do it in the most efficient way that you can. So one of you handle credits, and one of you handle the very brief origin story. Uh, ben Nadibi and I, Matt Wolpert, we are the uh, co-creators and showrunners of For All Mankind. And um, we've been doing that for four seasons now, which feels surreal to say at this point. Um, and before that, we worked on uh, a show called Fargo for the first three seasons. Uh, and we worked on a few other things like um, American Crime Story, People versus O.J. Simpson, Umbrella Academy. Uh, we've been writing together for about 20 years, I think. So, uh, Ben, do you want to tell the meet cute? No, I don't want to tell <laughs> <laughs> all right you know what let's skip it who gives a shit um let, let's talk about for all mankind instead uh you know you mentioned it's been four seasons but it does feel like has it been four seasons and like six years am i wrong to think that it feels like 20 but i think you're right i think 20 so it the first season aired in 2019 i think we started working on it in 2017 probably yeah so um and yeah it feels like one of those shows where and and correct me if I'm wrong, but it felt like there was a plan from the very beginning. You know, it always felt like we were in such confident hands, knowing where this story was going, know, knowing what was going to happen to these characters. Can you talk about the plan going in and then how things have changed, if they have, over the years? Yeah, I mean, we definitely like to talk about this because it makes us look like geniuses when you say we had a plan, seven seasons and decades, but... I mean, yes, we came together, Ron, Matt, and I uh, created this together. And I think what the early part of our conversations and the room's conversation was about, instead of going into season one, we kind of said, let's set out what six, seven seasons of the show would look like. Let's What would get us to the present? So on the board, we literally spent, I think, the first week or two talking about that, which is very unusual. Um, but I think it really helped us because the, the unique nature of the show is, you know, you're jumping a decade every season. And we knew for it to work, for, for the concept to make sense that you're seeing how history is changing, um, we had to do that kind of jumping. But we also wanted to have a roadmap. And I think each season, we spent a lot of the room talking about the end of that season. But starting by by putting together that full, I think at that point it was a six or seven season map, I'm not even sure. But we, you know, we, we revisit it every season, actually. We pull out the old Bible, you know, take out the dust and... Uh, and kind of look it over. And it's amazing, I have to say, how much 
we're still on that roadmap. Um, but it's not to say that we that our intention is to stick to that roadmap. I think we we you know things evolve. What you see with the actors and what they're doing, and we free up the writers' room to kind of go in any direction we feel we can go. So really, it was about having a sense of of how this alt history expands and how the butterfly effect of the space race continuing branches out in a way where we felt there was enough of a build to sustain that amount of seasons. It's very, you know, I, I I won't lie when we talked about it in season one, I was a bit ashamed, almost like, okay, who are we to talk about that many seasons of a TV show? Um, there were definitely times like, oh, wow, that, that to even talk about it uh, felt tough. And, and it is surreal to now be, you know, with season four out there, the fact that we're now, you know, talking about the end half of that kind of arc and being able to get to this point. There are things I think we set up early on that I'm so proud of. And if I'm honest, there are things that I wish <laughs> we did, we maybe put a little more thought into, including like, wait, we have to age these actors every season. So yeah, it's easy uh, back in the heydays of 2019 to talk about it, but now it definitely came, it comes with some surprises every season. <laughs> well, and luckily the, the pandemic aged everyone. So it's, there's no makeup from what I understand. <laughs> yes. Um, I do actually <laughs> want to talk about the actors. Like when do the conversations about the time jumps and about the leaps that the characters have made in those intervening years, the leave out years, when do those conversations with the actors happen? And like, what are those conversations like? What And what is the collaboration like? Um, they happen as soon as they possibly can happen, although we do like to try to uh, have some time in the room each season to kind of figure out the general shape of where we want to go before we start having those conversations with the actors. Um, and, you know, we we figure out a lot of stuff um, in terms of where the character is when we see them, but that's really where we're operating from. Obviously, we we figure out some key details in the, the leave out years, but a lot of that also falls to the actor to then um, in their own internal life, fill in uh, the details of what happened in their character's arc and how they can wrap their minds around, especially if their character's in a dramatically different place. Uh, how emotionally did I get here? What did I go through? Um, you know, Chantal Van Santen is one, one who comes to mind where she would actually journal as Karen. And like, she had so much thought going into everything that was going on in between. Ren Schmidt is another one who really, um, you know, in season four, she came up with this whole thing with her, uh, how she walks with a slight limp and in her mind in the intervening Years that we didn't see when she was in the USSR, she slipped on some ice because Margo's from Alabama and doesn't know how to walk on the ice. And that's, you know, it's like that level of thought that then shows itself in, in a physicality for the character that really, like, I think we have one of the most talented group of actors on television because they, they're such professionals in the way they approach this stuff and each in their own way, of course, but um they're they're really uh, a special group to work with, uh, and and honestly, it shows on screen. You know the work that they do, and then the work that you do with them. Um, and I want to talk about that, the writing process, and then we'll move away from the time jumps. But like, is it? I'm curious about how like the conversations start in the writers' room about where you're taking these characters. You know, you sort of have your big plan 
Sure, but then you have to drill down on the specifics for the next season. Is it a puzzle that you're putting into place or are you at the beginning of each season aiming for where folks are going to be at the next season? Are you, you know, are you backing into it or you're writing towards it, I guess? It's a little bit of both. I think because there's that roadmap in Matt and I's mind, we know where we want the show to go. So I think we we give the writer's room as much freedom as possible. And then, yeah, every once in a while I say, well, let's actually nudge that a little to the left. Let's try to keep them, you know, because like, for instance, we knew very early on, we wanted Margot Madison to be in the Soviet Union um, in this season, right? So we knew there was a roadmap for her character. So we, we at the same, while we know that in the back of our minds, we still want each season to work on its own, to its own merit. You know, we want to have the freedom to have an arc in that season that has a beginning, middle and end that works. And sometimes that's really challenging. You know, I, I think there are times we've, we've had a character like Molly Cobb, you know, Sonia Walger, she was supposed to die in episode six of season one. That was the plan. That was the roadmap plan. That's still in that Bible, by the way. And we saw what she was doing. We saw what a, what a, you know, force of nature she was as an actress and that character just you know screamed off the the screen and and we we pivoted so there's been many pivots like that and i think it's what's beautiful about television as opposed to um working on on features right television is a constant conversation i find between the writers each and the actors and even the audience in some level and i think you know we write 10 episodes but very often you're not you're like halfway through the scripts when you start shooting. So we're seeing what we're seeing on screen, what we're seeing in the dailies, what we're seeing in the cuts very often impacts what the end of that season is and how we're pivoting. So I think, yeah, to, to answer your, to go back to your question, I think there's a balancing act there that's very central to how we start our writer's room. You know, we, we talk about, okay, here's the roadmap we've, we discussed, but do we want to stick to that here? Does this character kind of, is this character going in a different direction off of how last season ended? Um, and yeah, I think I think the fun of that is that it keeps you know it, 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 it there's never a dull moment <laughs> on this show. You know, we we came from working on Fargo where every season you had to totally reset. You know, you had to start over. So we learned to not be precious about anything. And I think going into every season of this show, we've learned you know to not be precious to really take characters in different directions. It's not. You know, it's not about what happened to them in episode 10 of the previous season. It's, it's about what's happened to them over the last 10 years. Um, And, and I want to ask about, you know, finding the balance as well, episode to episode. You know, this is a character-based sci-fi action show. Um, how do you How do you balance those things? You know, what are you looking for when you're thinking about shaping episodes? Um, what you do is you when you start banging your head against the wall, you can't do it too hard right at the start. Um, no, it honestly, it's an incredibly difficult uh, balancing act, um, both in terms of tone and in terms of the amount of characters. I mean, you should have seen our um, uh, our character list at the end of season four, I think was over like 120 speaking characters. I mean, it was just insane, insane. And to balance all those characters and their own separate journeys. And a lot of times the characters also find themselves themselves within certain types of stories that we tell, you know, like Margot's story is, has a little bit more of an espionage thriller element to it where, you know, Ed Baldwin's story maybe lends itself a little more towards the action stuff or those kind of devastating family tragedy stories. 
Um, so, you know, one of the things we try to um, think about as we're working on scripts and as we're breaking stories is how those, uh, how those stories whose tones might be very different, how they fit together. Cause you, 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 it's really tricky to have uh, like, for example, in, um, uh, in season four, episode three, there's this uh, really intense interrogation sequence with Margot uh, that was really brutal. Uh, and um, and then you have this story of Miles up on the uh, up on Mars, sort of learning how to do the black market. And it was a slightly um, more comedic in tone or lighter in tone. Um, and we actually, in the editing of it, wound up tilting it a little less comedic than even some of the stuff we'd written and shot because it didn't feel like it was existing in the same episode. So they have to kind of talk to each other in a way that works cohesively. Yeah, and if that does feel like the kind of thing that like you can only really know for sure in post-production, right? So oh, yeah. how do you how do you trust yourselves to find that tone both? For the entirety of the episode, the entirety of the season, but even like storyline to storyline, how long, how far can you push things? Is that a conversation that happens all the time? You know, it's interesting because you know we also feel like when we started the show, the tone wasn't there right away. I think it found itself in that first season. Um, well, let's yeah. let me stop you there and let's talk about that for a second because I'm curious to hear about that. I mean, you obviously came in with a vision with, you know, an idea of what this show feels like, how, how did that change? How was that discovered? Well, it's look, I think the, it was a collaboration, this show, right? I mean, we came, Ron and us kind of came together as writers who have very different backgrounds and, you know, where Matt and I, our type of writing and Ron's, it wasn't a, Oh, we're, cause we weren't big sci-fi guys necessarily. Um, and Ron isn't either. I mean, he's done some of the amazing science fiction, but he's also worked on Outlander and likes working on other things. So I think we approached it um, in a similar way, but I think we had to find, we had to kind of connect three of us in the beginning of the show. And that took a little while to do. Um, and it's interesting that, you know, there's something I think about with the show in terms of the tone and how far we push it. There, you can only do so much, right? Like you, that so much. Like there's not really a conversation you can have in a room about what is the tone of this. I think naturally it becomes the voice of the showrunner. You're, you're, you kind of that's the voice you're pushing. So I think it's developed over that season. We kind of saw, we could feel what it was becoming. And you know, it's interesting because we jump in time. The nature of the show changes. You look at that first season; it almost feels more like a period drama, and season four it's feeling more like a sci-fi show. And it's interesting, Matt and I, something we we talk about a lot is, you know, even though the show is changing in time, like we're going more and more to the future, the character's getting older, holding on to what the tone of the show is, you know, it's so important. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of that connect connective tissue, if you will, of, of what carries a season to season, even if it's a totally new cast, you're bringing new actors, you're now on Mars. I think, I think being able to do that is something it's more of a gut feel, honestly, that as you're reading these scripts, um, and then seeing the cuts, you know, I think we have our taste, what we like, um, is what we sort of lean into. And uh, just to add to that, I think just as writers, I think Ben and I feel very, um, uncomfortable in comfortable places <laughs> like we're very conscious of not becoming too comfortable in our writing and so we're trying to push 
ourselves to the outside of the envelope. So like um, Gordo and Tracy's moon run in duct tape suits or Sally ride pulling a gun out in a space capsule. <laughs> like those are all things that when we came up with those ideas and we talked them out in the room and we even wrote them. And when, even when we were shooting them, we were like, this could either work amazing or not work at all. And that comes back to that tone thing and, and how you find it. And like the, the, the run, the duct tape suit runs a great example because, you know, Ben and I looked at each other on set and we're like, this could be a total disaster because <laughs> they're like, you know, on wires and they're going like this on in duct tape. And they're like, it's not in slow motion yet. There's no blood spurting out. Like it's, and it's just like a little patch of gray. We're like, I don't know. And then we watched, you know, the first couple of cuts and it wasn't quite working and it still wasn't what we knew it could be. And we realized it was all about the music of that moment. Cause at first it was like, more tension action score and then it was we tried some needle drops and we tried other things and then we wound up landing on this kind of um romantic slower score and suddenly it brought everything to life that was in that moment already but it like made it come together in the right way in the tone that we didn't even know necessarily that we wanted but when we saw it, we were like oh that's exactly what we wanted it to be from the beginning that is so interesting to me. And I have sort of like a practical question um, and then sort of a headier question about that same thing. On the practical level, like you're trusting that this idea, this weird idea that you guys had is going to work. What if it doesn't? Like, what if the edit comes back and you're like, okay, that version didn't work, that version didn't work, and now the music is in it and that doesn't work either? What's the alternative? What do you as showrunners do? I, <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sweating. I'm sweating just thinking about it. Well, but no, I, I love that question because I've thought about this a lot. You know, the, even the, you know, in all my, all our experience working on other shows, I do think, you know, the best moments that I've seen work out are the ones you're most scared of in your writing. You know, that I think that duct tape suits a good example. There are many, many others that, you know, the idea of character by killing off two of your major characters that you love, and and in that moment going, wait, so we don't have Michael Turman and Sarah Jones. What do we do? This is not a smart. So the, there's those moments that you have to take that leap and take that risk. And you're right. It's like it feels like the ones that are really the bigger risks. It could fall into the camp of it works brilliantly or it, it fails spectacularly. And you know we're the editing room is really where you're able to kind of shape these episodes in the end and sometimes save those scenes that aren't working. But yes, every once in a while, there's the scene that just no matter what you do, it's not working. And, you know, I think we've gotten very good at um, not being precious. You know, we will, we will cut down. I mean, our, you know, we will cut scenes of storylines if they're not working because we believe, you know, if we feel Matt and I feel like, it didn't connect. It's it didn't work the way we intended, and there's no way to get it there. Whether it's the music or the cutting, we'll probably leave it out of the episode. Um, and is there? And again, this is like just on a purely practical level. So you're cutting out a storyline, and granted, you guys have so many storylines in every episode, but like, yeah, that helps. That does leave out an actor. That does leave out a character. That does leave out something that you may need in the next episode or three episodes from now. 
is there, do you get to go back? Do you get to fill in? How do you fill in what you're missing from that? I mean, you have to, you have to think through all that stuff. And I think it's one of the reasons that, that in television, it's so essential that the writer is kind of in charge of everything because they're the only person who knows the answers to all those questions. They're the, you know, the director's focused on their specific episodes. Um, So we're able to think three episodes ahead and okay, well, if you didn't have this story point, does it blow everything up? Or is that something that could have happened off screen? You know, and because you're, um, depending on where you're at in shooting, you can change the dialogue in a later episode to kind of help cover something. Um, You know, there's a lot of different ways to do it, but you'd be surprised how many things you can cut out that you think are essential and then you watch it and you're like, oh no, actually we don't need that at all. (laughs) That's definitely happened before. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But this, and this, it's funny. And I ask this because I'm going through this stuff right now. So I'm curious to hear how you guys deal with this thing. But like, I think we as writers know that, right? We know that down the line, there's stuff that's going to come out. There's stuff that is going to be sold between a look uh, by a look between actors or just, you know, a performance that we have to put in the script anyway. Is there a way to communicate that to executives, to people giving you notes or, or do you just have to go through the motions? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. It's something that I think one of the real benefits of working on Fargo with Noah was we saw that he writes in a very cinematic way. And by that, I mean, it's very visual. Like he's telling you what the camera's doing, what the look, like it, it, the dialogue is not necessarily front and center. And I think it's something we, t- we really embrace on our show. You know, the, the scripts are filled with what the camera's doing, what the music's doing, what the, how long we're on that look, because I agree with you. I think, I think the, the nature of the show leans into that so much that I think that I, I always feel there's, I don't remember where I heard this, but like, you should be able to understand if you watch a show on mute or a movie, you should be able to understand what's going on, what's happening in the story. Like that, that someone told me that once and really stuck with me. He's like, yes, there's something that makes sense to me. And, you know, look, a- executives getting that through, <laughs> understanding that, I mean, on some level, the good executives do, and I think embrace it. And we've been really fortunate with the show at Apple where they took such a leap of faith on a weird show like this. Um, and that by this point, we've earned their trust enough to be able to, to pull that off. Because I think, yes, Part of the thing is there's always in the beginning of a show um, the fear-based writing of let me over-explain, let me, let me throw you the backstory. Well, we really trust our audience. We don't love to, we don't, we hate spoon feeding. And I think even jumping in time 10 years, there's an instinct to, oh, the first episode should just be, where has everyone been? What have they been doing for 10 years? What is what has this been doing? And we really fight that urge and say, you know what? It, it's the equivalent of bumping into a friend on the street you haven't seen in a decade you don't right away go into like what were you doing in 95 96 97 98 right you see that their their hair's grayer they're a little heavier maybe their bags under their eyes you, you, there's a story told without them even opening their mouth and it's something that i think we we really take that to heart i i love that approach and it's it's honestly it's part of why i like the show and i think it's part of why especially so many writers like the show is like you're speaking our language you're not condescending to the audience you know you're letting us catch up a little bit. And that does feel good. Um, I want to go back to this idea that, and, and, you know, you use the, the duct tape suit to illustrate it, but like you guys knew that would work, right? You knew like, let's take this big swing, which I think the show is not afraid to do. 
And a question I get from a lot of new writers um, and, and students that I have is about that instinct to trust, right? How do I know when this thing is working? How do I know when the decision I've made is the right decision for my story, for my characters, for this episode? How do you, how, you know, what response do you have to those new writers? It's a, it's incredibly difficult because I don't think you can ever really know. Like, like we were saying, you know, we don't know with any of that stuff, but I think you have, what I, uh, and I think Ben does this too. I always try to remember back to my initial flush of excitement when I first heard an idea or thought of an idea, or when Ben and I were first riffing on something and we're our most excited about, excited about it before the realities of how we pull it off and then what the actors do with it and all this other stuff. Like there is something about that initial part of the creation of something that you have to remember back to uh, and hold on to. And, you know, um, and then just trust that feeling that when you first experience this concept just like the audience will do at some point later on, it's going to be cool. And then honestly, though, on the flip side, there's a billion different versions of something like execution matters, you know, like it it matters how you do something. And so that's the other part of it is like, there's a lot of great ideas that were poorly executed and just don't work. Ben, you touched on uh, killing off beloved characters, beloved to the audience and beloved to you guys. Um, and this was a question that came up when I was talking to to writers who are fans of the show. It never feels like you are losing a character for shock value. You know, it always feels earned. But let's talk about those decisions and what goes into those decisions and the conversations you have with each other and with the writer's room and then eventually with the actors, too. Well, it's it's honestly the most painful part of the show. I, you know, I I think early on we knew for this concept to work we were going to have to evolve the cast from season one, you know, like it, we couldn't hold on to 120 year old astronauts by seasons, you know, by the end of the show. So we knew going into it that it's going to, it's going to be bloody, right. It's going to be bloody. Um, but like you said, I think it was really important to us to do justice to this idea. We talk about it as a character's arc. There's their arc in an episode. There's, there's, arc, there's excuse me, there's their arc in the season. And there's their arc as a character on the show. And so when it feels like that arc, we've told the story we need to tell with that character and, and you don't have to go any further. I have to say, not only is it, it's freeing because I think the, the, the dilemma most other writers have to deal with on TV shows is they get to later seasons of their show and they're clearly repeating themselves or, you know, here we are back telling a similar, but slightly different story on season seven or eight with this character. I think on our show, we, we were given the, because of the nature of jumping in time, I think we're given more freedom to be able to move on from actors when we felt it right. But that never was about this actor's difficult or, you know, we don't want to pay them anymore. Or it was never that it was always about what felt right in the storytelling. And honestly, what we learned pretty early on was the more painful it was for us, the more painful it will be for the audience. So I feel like, you know, my wife hates my guts with this show by this point because she she's convinced I'm just killing off the people she loves the most as some kind of anger at her. But really, it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, we say sometimes I feel like we've killed off 
in many ways our favorite people, our favorite actors to work with, our favorite characters. Um, but looking back, it's discussed ad nauseum. Like we when we when it comes up in the room, we have sometimes ideas early on of oh, we're gonna do this, this will be the end of their arc. And we wait on it. And by the time we get to episode 10 or by the time it happens, we go, does this still feel like the right ending? Does this still feel like the end of that character's arc? And what came up a lot, actually, you know, with season three in many ways was we didn't want to get into the habit either of that the only way you leave this show is by dying or being killed. That started to feel, it started to feel to us going into season three and into four that we also have to move off of characters when it feels like they're no longer their story. You know, for instance, Ellen Wilson, I think is a good example of that. You know, we always saw, we always had a three season arc with her in mind. You know, I remember when we first met Jody in our first meeting with her, I remember we told her by season three, you're president of the United States. (laughs) She, she laughed. Like you can't be serious. Like, no, no, that's, that's the plan. And I will say there were times in season two when Matt and I looked at each other and said, "Is she? how are we still going to pull this off by next season? But, you know, when we finally got there, um, it felt like, and she comes out at the end of season three, it did feel like this is the appropriate end for her character. And, and you know, as much as maybe I'm intrigued by the story of an ex-president, you know, jumping around Mars, it didn't, it didn't feel right to For All Mankind, didn't feel right to the character. And so it's it's difficult, you know, but I think our actors, for the most part, understand, although it's very hard for them, because I think in our culture, there's this idea in TV, if you're killed off, or you're no longer on the show, it's, there's almost this, this social, you know, this, <laughs> this cultural thing of like, oh, you were killed off because you were a problem, or you were killed off because something went wrong. That's been the history of television. And our show is the opposite. I feel, if anything, we kill you off because you're doing a great job. Um so yeah, it's it's something that we felt we had to do, but it's something that we we intentionally wanted to do in a way that never felt forced or rushed, that always felt like the right time. And honestly, that we didn't really have more great story to tell with that character. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, it it, it always, and you guys have pulled it off, you know, like a character dying or leaving the show always feels inevitable. It feels like the right end for the character. And then you get to have those repercussions, right? It's a great catalyst for more drama. Um, were there, before we get off of this subject entirely, were there like big story turns like that, that sort of once you got, you know, into seasons two, three, and, you know, the room was clicking and you guys knew what this show was, were there big story turns that surprised you? I think the, um, you know, one of my favorite things to go back to Gordo and Tracy that, that we've ever done, I I don't think we ever really, I think when we first approached that story of those two characters, we were thinking of it more about how uh, telling the story of how a, a couple who both want to do the same thing are torn apart by that thing. Um, And it wasn't until the middle of season two, actually, that we, we happened on this idea. Wait a minute. What if it's a, if it's a, it's still a love story. What if we pivot and it's not just the sad dissolution of a marriage, but it's, I'm going to the moon to get my wife back. And it's that reconnection that kind of broke open the emotional arc of the second half of that season in a way that we didn't know when we were getting, we always knew we were heading toward like Cuban missile crisis on the moon and, and, you know, Soviet, uh, Soviet American uh, paramilitary uh, conflict, but that emotional core that makes it so effective was, uh, was discovered in a way um and and even more recently i think 
even though we 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 never really knew we wanted to tell the story of um the the working man on mars element when we were first talking about stuff it was something that came up in the initial discussions of season four that i think has really broken open the show in a great way it just brings so much new uh lifeblood into the types of stories we can tell when not everybody is a pilot or an engineer and they have other wants and goals at, for why they're going that it shifts the nature of the show a little bit where it's like you know um somebody who's going out into space just to earn a living they have different motivations and they're going to do different things than somebody who's trying to push the envelope or learn about you know the cellular structure of whatever so um i think that's a really exciting new development in the show that i think will keep paying off dividends as we go because you know each each decade i think it's become more and more different from that i mean ben and i were we're joking like if you watch the first episode of this show and then the last episode of the fourth season you'd be like these are these are not the same show at all there's no way this is the same show because it evolves you know so it's it's fun well this was actually a question i had because the show is so different now um and we've been along for the journey you know we've seen that evolution is there something like what is the for all mankindness of for all mankind like is there some core element some some key key word or keystone that you latch onto to say we know that this is the show and so you recognize when you're pushing too far or something has gone off track yeah you know there is i think it, it's it's not simple to say but i think there is there's always behind this idea the concept of what could have been right the concept of you know a more a better society or a better world like if we took this path and i think sometimes you know matt and i actually probably come more naturally from a cynical <laughs> perspective i would say we're more pessimists than even the show is but there's a it's interesting because i think it helps us creatively because there's this constant clash in the show between that between the idea of like something more a, utop- a utopian thought a, an idealistic more earnest world or what's possible versus i think the cynicism and pessimism that pervades in our society and in writing, you know, I mean, more, most sci-fi is dystopian in nature, especially alternate history sci-fi. So I think when we approached this early on, we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to do the story of like, what if everything went to shit and everyone's miserable all the time? So we, we constantly push back, I think on our instincts of a dark, <laughs> of a darker world. And what we see, honestly, what we read in the news, what we talk about in the beginning of the day is, is really dark, especially lately. Um, so I think that is the show is kind of, you know, uh, the flag in the sand for the show, I think really is that it's the idea of a more hopeful future um, and what could have been. And I think that's if there's anything we we stick to in the room, it's that idea. I mean, the, the other thing I would say on top of that is, you know, making it feel grounded. I think that's another thing we push a lot in the room and put and not only in the room on set and with the department heads and with the actors we're constantly saying this has to feel real. This has to feel lived in. Um, I think, you know, we, we always look at aliens, the Ridley Scott, what we loved about that is it, and even it's the ships looked lived in. They felt, you know, I remember the, you know, in the beginning of alien where, you know, they're, it's like union guys talking about union issues on a spaceship. You know what I mean? You're right away. It sets the tone of, Oh wow. Okay. 
this feels real to me. I believe I believe this. And I think that was the other thing is to keep even especially as we go more into the future, alt future and becomes more sci-fi to hold on to that sense of realism and the grounded nature. And I think the way to do that is is really focusing on the characters and the character storylines. And and just to add to that quickly, I think to go back to something Ben said, like we it's important for for things to feel real. It's important while we're being talking about idealism and what could have been to acknowledge the reality of the dark side of the world. So like in the scene where Ellen comes out to Deke at the end of season one, like we all wanted him to accept her because we love Deke and we love and we wanted her to have acceptance, but it didn't feel grounded and real to have that happen in that time period. And so I think that's always our touch point is like, well, we want it to feel hopeful at the same time. We want it to acknowledge that hope is not always the only thing. And sometimes people push back against progress and there's, there's ups and downs to the evolution of, of uh, progress. I've had a great conversation with a friend of mine who's a writer on Grey's Anatomy, who was a comedy writer who went to work on this show. And she was like, I love it. We don't have to know the stuff. We just go medical, 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 <laughs> and then talk about the character stuff. Um, and a lot of people are wondering, like, the show is can be sciencey, but it never feels impenetrable. Um, how do you handle the science of the show? Like, what's your way in, and what are the conversations in the writer's room? It, you know, Ben and I, I think one of the reasons it feels uh, accessible is because Ben and I need to understand it also, and we're not uh, uh, engineers or anything close to it. And so, but we're, you know, we're smart enough guys. It doesn't have to be totally remedial. So I think that we're always conscious of like, if we understand this, most people will be able to understand this on some level. Um, but it is, it's funny. They do medical, 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 because we definitely when we're writing, we do tech, tech, tech when it's like science conversations. And then we get, we get a lot of suggestions from our advisors. And then obviously you have to filter that through, well, what, does this fit in with the scene and is this the right way to build the tension of the scene? Um, but it's an, we approach it as another way to help the story feel grounded. Like the, a lot of times the science is not what the scene is about. It's another tool for us to make the scene feel more real because it's about engineers and pilots and scientists and now, uh, laborers. Um, so it's really through that prism that we approach all of the the tech stuff. And uh, you know, one way, one sheet we've done to kind of make it more accessible is this role of the NASA administrator in every season. You know, so there's a there's a figurehead who is more of a politician, a political role. I mean, in real life, um, and also provides us an opportunity to quote unquote dumb down <laughs> the science for his sake and maybe you know for the audiences as well you know it, wait a minute so you're saying <laughs> you're saying you're gonna launch this person up well let me tell yeah. you administrator what's really gonna yeah. happen here but it's great if you can put it in the voice of character right like exactly they know that they have to go through these motions with this character and you mentioned you know real life which i think is a good segue to this, which is, again, this is a very nuts and boltsy kind of question, but like in those alternate history montages at the beginning of each season, you are building upon an alternate history each time. So we're like, when we're looking at the fourth season and the fifth season, like 
how do you decide what stays, what goes? How do you decide what, you know, parts of real history are still present in this show and what you have changed through what you have done in previous seasons? I, we are becoming more and more godlike in our powers here with this show. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is weird. It's dangerous. <laughs> it is. The power can really go to our heads here. Um, <laughs> no, you know, it's it's interesting. This, you know, we love putting together those montages, but there's so much of it is a mixture of, of you know, fun little nuggets that Matt and I just kind of <laughs> want to put in there. But a lot of thought, you know, in our staff, there's almost like a little documentary being made throughout the season where the staff and the support staff, everyone's putting in ideas. And a lot of it is not just like, oh, it'd be fun if this happened, it'd be fun if this happened. It's actually it has to be based on the original butterfly effect. And, and why would this change? And how would this change? And how is this related to uh, the space race continuing? And I think what was, what's been fascinating, actually, is that a lot of the alt history changes now, especially by season four, are coming about because of previous changes we've made in our alt history. So they, they it increases. And so a lot of it comes down to, to that. It's become even a great storytelling device, to be honest, where we're setting the tone and for the era and what's happening in the era. But even this year and even in season threes, a lot of the storylines are baked are set up actually in that montage. Like you you so, so we are it's an opportunity to kind of put in some exposition without it feeling like exposition. Um, and we've definitely taken advantage of that as any writer would. Um, but, you know, other than that, it's, it's a lot of fun, honestly. I think, I think the little tidbits of, you know, Michael Jordan playing for the Mariners or, you know, even who's president now, I think Matt and I, before we ever worked on the show, I mean, we are political junkies. We're obsessed with history. The show really, I mean, when, you know, this show doesn't have IP, you know, it's one of the rare science fiction shows that's not based on anything. Um, and it allows us to adapt, which in a weird way, I think our IP, if it's anything, it's history, right? I mean, we're we're adapting history and creating our own kind of alternate history. So I, I, I won't lie. There are moments recently where we thought, should we like bring on like an alt historian or someone in the room to keep track of all these things? Because it is getting it is getting to be harder and harder, I think, as as we go. But it is like that attention to detail, which is why the people who love this show love this show so much. Like, it absolutely makes sense. Um, all right. Season four is on right now. Folks can check it out. It'll be wrapping up uh, mid-January. Um, guys, thank you so much for being here. We'll end, as we always do, by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with each other, with your rooms, with your loved ones? Um, I... I've just started watching the uh, the next season of Slow Horses because I I could just watch Gary Oldman play that character in perpetuity forever. It's just amazing. I could just watch him just like his go about his regular day. I doesn't even need to be in a plot at all. Um, and the other thing I'm watching just for I do like every other year is I'm rewatching Deadwood just because to me that was like one of the high points of all television. The way the language and the storytelling and the characters and and just the crazy amount of story they shove in one episode. I was talking with Ben about this earlier. I'm like, there's like seven huge stories going on at the same time. Um, so uh, that's what I'm watching right now. But it's funny. It makes so much sense. Like it, you can feel the DNA of Deadwood in For All Mankind, like just in the way it treats the characters. And even these tertiary characters have these full lives and storylines. I, I love that. Um, ben, what about you? Well, you know, I just started on The Curse, which I, anything Nathan Fielder 
<laughs> does I'm into I mean I'm very into uncomfortable shows so and any British shows do that as well but man they really nailed it it's it's so hard to watch and I love I I don't know what it is maybe a masochist but I love it I've also you know not that it's TV but you know there's been a, a renaissance here in LA of cinemas that have opened up the Vista just opened up the Egyptian theater so I've actually spent the last month or so like having the time of my life going to see older movies uh in these in 70 millimeter on the huge screen including you know last week Lawrence of Arabia I saw for the first time uh, on a big screen and man it is I have not shut up about it to Matt I, I've seen the movie before but I gotta say there's something about seeing it on a big screen uh it's just a, a whole so I would recommend that to anyone like to check out these new theaters that are popping up it's absolutely it's so funny like my wife and I went to see Lawrence of Arabia on the big screen last I think like December and we had the same experience where we were like I can't stop telling people how great this movie is and everyone's like yeah we know yeah it's been out a while <laughs> it came out in 1960 exactly they're like yeah. okay like no 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 you gotta see it this way yeah exactly. yeah yeah but yeah uh it turns out movies are yeah. great um all right turns out who knew thank you guys so much uh good luck with the rest of the season good luck with the rest of the series we're excited to see what comes next thanks Ben it was a lot sure. of fun all right indeed it was a good conversation I didn't lie uh, those guys were really terrific. I would love to have them back uh, when the show is all said and done. Up next, we've got this chat with Brian Helgeland, who, as I mentioned, has a new movie out that he wrote and directed, a very personal film to him that he wrote 25 years ago called Finest Kind. It's out on Paramount Plus right now. Um, we talk about that film. We talk about so many of the movies in his long career, uh, including his start in horror films with A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 and 976 Evil, Highway to Hell, 976 Evil. Uh, of course, a terrific watch. <laughs> we all we all knew that that guy would later go on to win an Oscar for L.A. Confidential. Um, we talk about that, how L.A. Confidential got off the ground. It's a really great story. Um, but his other movies, Conspiracy Theory, A Knight's Tale, Mystic River, um, he did the Taking of Pelham 123 remake, which is pretty good. Um, it's a really sort of wide-ranging conversation about the craft of writing. Uh, and it's really worthwhile for anyone who wants to work in this business. Um, you know, Brian's a guy who really made his way with, with no connections. Uh, so, you know, it's an inspiring story in that regard. Um, so here's my conversation with Brian Helgeland. Oh, yeah! Thanks for chatting. Um, so let's jump right in and talk about Finest Kind. Um, this is your new movie that you've written and directed. Uh, it's out now on uh, Paramount. It sounds like this is a movie you've been living with for a long time. Is that right? Yeah, I wrote the film, the very first draft I wrote when I was 28 years old. Um, and directed it when I was 60. So it it really is almost like it, the first script I wrote, I, that's the first script I directed that a different writer wrote other than myself, because all the other ones went right away, more or less. But um, I, um, it's set against the world of commercial fishing. And I had come from a family of fishermen. My dad was a fisherman, my grandfather and when I graduated, I graduated from undergrad with an English degree. I couldn't get a job. And I didn't want to, Helgoland had been to sea for about 200 years. And I didn't want to break the streak. So 
I went fishing. Uh, and then it's write what you know, I guess, you know, what everyone says. So I wrote this. It's one of the first scripts I wrote, maybe the third or fourth. And for whatever reason, I could never get it made. So I always just assumed what I knew no one was interested in. We, we're always told to tell these personal stories, right? We're always told to tell these stories that only you can tell. And I think you've done that over and over in your career. And we'll talk about some of that later. But, you know, what do you think was the resistance to getting this movie made? Because it doesn't feel like a far out or weird movie. Yeah, I think part of it um, was the ensemble nature of it. Because I could never... There was never a one single part that was big enough to get a big star wanting to do it. Um, and also, the stars of the movie, well, the, the, uh, the youngest star of the movie is Charlie, who's, there weren't any, he's 21 years old, so there aren't any 21-year-old 20, stars anyway. So I think it had that issue that I couldn't give it to an actor and say, here it is, and the, you know, they'd say, it's not big enough. And the ensemble nature of it, I think, made it hard for us uh, places to put up the money for it. Yeah. So, so tell me about the journey with this script. You know, like you, I'm sure you tried to get it made early on in your career. Did it go back in a drawer? When did you revisit it? When did you, you know, start? Did you tinker with it over the years? Yeah. I, um, it's two brothers. Um, and at the, at the very first draft, it wasn't, it was just one single guy going on this journey. The, the captain of the boat was a character, but he wasn't his brother. And so he was a very important character and a lot of the similarities to what, what is in there now, but they didn't have that familial connection. And the biggest change I made was early on, actually, it was about a year in that I, I decided to make them half brothers and from different walks of life. And it allowed me to have two dads instead of one dad and stuff like that. But, um, I I had done the movie A Knight's Tale with Heath Ledger, and we did another movie after that, and I gave it to Heath to play the younger brother. And Heath really liked it, and he kept, we had a, we talked about it, and he kept talking about the older brother, and I said, yeah, but I want you to play the younger brother. And he said, I don't want to play the younger brother. I, I, I've done that part already. I've, I've played the young guy. I want to play the older brother. And I said, you're, but you're not old enough. And he said in his kind of charming way, he said, well, wait for me. And I wasn't pressed to do it. He wanted to do it. And I said, I'll wait for you. And, you know, the bad joke is, is I'm still waiting. And when Heath died, I, I just put it away uh, for about 10 years, probably. I just, I just, it just, I just wasn't interested in it. And I was doing other things and, but uh, at a certain point, it was my dad who asked me. He, he wasn't, it was one of the few things he was interested in was finest kind. And uh, so I started trying to get it going and I just, nothing would click. I had a version of it um, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal um, that I couldn't get going and that fell apart. And then I again, put it away. And then finally, I, it's sort of, I had nothing to do and I, I didn't have a job and I thought, oh, we'll, we'll try one last time. And I set the beginning of it. I set up on my own. I didn't have a finance, right? I always owned the script. I never got a, I never optioned it. I never got a dollar for it. So I, I always owned it. So that was a, a good thing. 
And I sent it to Ben Foster and Ben read it and he said, I'm in. And I said to him, I don't know what you're in for because I, right now I have nothing. And he said, well, if you can use my name, if my name helps to raise some money, I'm in. And I had seen the movie Baby Teeth uh, that uh, Toby is in, Australian movie, which is a really lovely movie. And uh, I sent it to Toby and um, he called and said, I want to do this. When, when can I read? And I said, you don't have to read. If you want to do it, you're in. But I just don't know if I'm doing it or not. And then when I had the two of them and I, I could visualize it because I had two faces now to, to stick on there. I set, I started sending it out and trying to set it up. Um, we still needed, you know, we needed to get Tommy Lee Jones on board for the, for the money people to start to feel a little bit comfortable, but even Jenna Ortega hadn't Wednesday hadn't come out yet. So they knew she was, and she had a up and coming track record, but, but um, that was only after the fact that, everyone was excited about about her so it just kind of organically came together without any real studio agenda as as it feels like so often happens especially in the last like decade of trying to get movies off the ground yeah i mean all this is the joke was always they just want to say no every time you go into a meeting it's like the executive is like please let me say no to this and uh it just got to a point where they were say, they someone said yes, you know, and but not 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 because they tried to put it together. Did you at what point did you realize this was going to be something for you to direct to? Because that certainly couldn't have been the case when you first wrote it. Yeah, no, I always, I when I very first wrote it, I didn't think I would be able to direct it because I just didn't think of myself that way. But um, probably about. Five years in on the whole journey, I thought I'm going to direct this, and by then I had directed a couple of things, and um, I still had uh, did both jobs. I always do both jobs, but um, I always thought I have to direct it. I'm curious to hear about that relationship, like that creative relationship that you have to the work when it's something that you know you're going to direct versus something you're writing for another director. How do you look at them differently? Do you you know approach them differently? Yeah, I scripts that I know I'm going to direct are always shorter. They're always about 15 pages shorter, just because there's less handholding, so to speak, in a in a you know in a way that you just don't want to. You want to make it clear what the intention is, so you overwrite some description, you overwrite some things, just to knowing that someone else is going to be looking at this. And um, so they're definitely shorter scripts when I direct them. Um, and I'm very, uh, collaborative and, and wanting to be part of something in a way. So if I'm, if I'm writing for another director, I really want to know what they want and what they, how they want to tell the story. You know, if we're diametrically opposed, it's going to be a problem, but I haven't had that experience. I've been very lucky with the directors I've, I've worked with. Um, and most of them I worked with more than once. Um, but uh, uh, the first time I wrote for uh, another director, it wasn't the first time I wrote for him, but it was, a, it was an original script. It was Conspiracy Theory years ago, and the director was Dick Donner, and he was making it different than I wanted to have the movie come out. And, uh, but he said to me, he said, you know, I'm not interested in ruining your script. I, 
but I'm telling it from my point of view and how I see the world. And it's not exactly the same as how you see the world. And he said, you know, if you want to have it exactly the way you want it to be, you got to direct it. Um, which was great. He, he took my like unhappiness and, and tried to make a positive thing out of it. Um, but like for the example, I, I did the movie Man on Fire with Tony Scott and I could never have directed that movie the way Tony directed it. I could never have pulled that off. So that was great. It's like it's a better movie because he directed it. Yeah, that's the collaboration you look for, right? Everyone, everyone working to make this thing better, bringing their own perspectives to it and hopefully not clashing, but open to that collaboration. Um, what is that like for you as a writer director? on set or, or a writer director directing your own stuff. Like, tell me about that collaboration. I'm probably less respectful to the script, my own script that I'm directing than I am less protective of it, I guess, than when someone else is directing it. And by the time we get to set and I've done the rewrites and I've had, I've lived with the script for so long, the scenes are kind of feel flat to me. Um, and wrote in a way and some but sometimes we shoot them the way i wrote them and it turns out fine but when actors come up and they have ideas and i find actors to be very sincere um good ones you know and they they're only trying to make the character the best that they can make it and that's all their job is that character and if they're doing their job they should know that character better than i do by the time we get to set and you know and if they do that great things come out of that and really it's the the scene has an intention and the scene's about something and how you get there is up for grabs a little bit as long as you get there so if the if we do a scene and at the end of the when we're done with it it means the same thing that i, I meant for it to mean i'm happy with the with all that stuff um the in the movie in the finest kind of one of the very first scenes, uh, the character of Charlie is on the boat and they're hazing him. And it's, it's supposed to be funny, but they're also, it's also supposed to be a kind of a hazing of him. And I had a funny scene that I wrote for that. And um, the morning we were going to shoot, the two actors, um, Aaron Stanford and Scotty Tovar, said, hey, can we show you something? And if you've seen the movie, it's the scene where they say, you look like Justin Bieber and we don't like Justin Bieber. And they came up with all that. Uh, but what I had was it's a funny scene and you're hazing them and they did that. And, but it was better than what I, it was better than what I wrote. So we went with that. I love that. Um, is there, you know, this is a very sort of technical question about directing, I guess, but like, how do you let it be known early in the process to the actors, to your, your crew that like, I'm a person who's open to collaboration, but I also have a firm hand, uh, on the rudder, you know? Well, you can say it, but a lot of people have heard someone, a lot of people have heard, the actors have heard someone say that, and then that's not how it is. So you never go by what someone's, never judge a person by what they tell you about themselves. Um, but it becomes, a well, to, the, to some members of the crew, the DP, you're working with them so much before you start shooting that they have a sense of that. But, and I don't rehearse a lot. Um, I'll have a read through and I'll talk to them about their characters and stuff like that. But I really rehearse on the day we shoot in the, in the morning. And um, 
Why? Let me interrupt for one second to dig in on that. Why? Why not? Why? Why uh, save those rehearsals again? Because it feels like it's the moment to do it. It feels like the right time to do it, um, and you're on the location, so you're not um, in a room somewhere. And so much of the physical space that you have dictates, um, you know, especially physical movement. Um, that um, I just. And I've, like I said, I've been lucky with actors who really know what they're doing. They come to set with their lines memorized. They have ideas about how they want to play it. Um, and it's sort of the most exciting part of the day is that rehearsal. And I try to make it that, too. And so that when we're done, however long it takes, it could take 20 minutes or it could take two hours. Everyone's like, yeah, we got it. We got it. Now we, now we just got to shoot it. But we have it. Um, and you have the DP involved in that, so he can nudge it, you know, you're getting away from, yeah, and that production designer, even I'll have the production designer involved. Um, and it's like, you just make the most of the space and the lighting and the, and the actors. And it just, it, I think it's a very exciting way to work and it's never bitten me really. So. Yeah, it's a great way to give it that that lived in feel, right? Everyone's in the space, everyone's, you know, able to move around in it, and you can see how they move around in it as their characters. Um, before we get too far away from it, you mentioned, you know, we were talking about the the difference between writing for yourself as director and others. You mentioned overwriting the script for others. Um, and I want to get into this, like some of this technical stuff about what your scripts look like. What to you is overwriting a scene you know it's really more uh, overwriting the stage direction and overwriting the emotion um trying to trying to leave more um breadcrumbs in a way for the actor so that they're not um wondering what what it is exactly that we're trying to pull off it, it's not dialogue really I, I don't overwrite the dialogue but i might put more parentheticals in if i'm not directing it Especially if someone's being, uh, if someone means something to be funny or sarcastic, no one, no one ever kind of can can read that without a note. But it, yeah, it's not. I wouldn't change the dialogue, but I would put more parentheticals. I would put longer descriptions. Um, I would write in what the character's feeling when they're not talking. Um, that kind of thing. And that's interesting because that's often stuff that, you know, in screenwriting classes or the so-called rules of screenwriting, you're often told not to do, right? Don't don't write in anything that's not on screen, but it is on screen. It is. And I and I do think that it's always the overwriting of it can also be trying to articulate what the score is doing in a sense. Um not literally, but you know, sad, angry, pensive. If I always think of it as I'm, I'm writing the score so that they can feel what the score is telling us, you know, as far as how it affects what we're looking at, how the cast is performing and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it is in so many ways a, a letter to your director, right? You know, you're conveying this is the emotion of the scene. This is, and maybe you want to do it with score. Maybe you want to do it with, you know, these acting moments, whatever it is, but that's coming across on the page first. Yeah. Because you don't want it to be ambiguous that you don't want there to be a disconnect there, obviously. Um, and, uh, 
like I said, it's a little bit of handholding in a way, and want and just extra. Say it twice. <laughs> <laughs> sure, absolutely. Yeah. Is this stuff? I mean, I'm I'm looking at your your resume here, and like it looks like you just banged out a bunch of these horror movies early on. These were your first opportunities. Was this a learning on the job experience for you? Yeah, absolutely. And I started in the sort of late, mid, late eighties. And at that time it was a Renaissance for horror movies. There hadn't been many horror movies out just like right now is a, is a bit of a Renaissance for horror movies. And, um, no one established wanted to write them because they were basically embarrassed. I'm not, I don't, they had a stigma attached to it, which I actually don't think it has anymore, which is nice. And they didn't pay, right? They didn't pay at all. And so it was still hard to get that gig, but it was a great way to learn. Um, And horror movies are not dialogue heavy, right? So they're very visual. They're very, it forces you to, try to think of things visually um and get into more of a film language i think um so i was always uh like you know when i did a nightmare on elm street four and wrote it and nightmare on elm street three had been written by frank darabont you know so it was like that we were all like getting our chance um through horror movies so i I wouldn't trade one of them. I mean, that was my, that was really how I learned a lot of how to write was through those. It really sounds like it. And were these the kind of things where like you were part of the process throughout or were you sort of handing off a script and then they'd take it? Yeah, it depends on, it varied from project to project. Um, um, But like I did a film called Highway to Hell, uh, which was direct, I was on set. So we shot in Page, Arizona. And the director and I hit it off and I was on set and uh, I think it was like a 24 day shoot and we ran out of money with six days to shoot. And the company just said, okay, we'll come home and, and edit, put together whatever you got. We, we're not going to, we don't have money to shoot those last six days. So it's whatever, 25 pages of the script just never got shot. Um, I did a film with, called 976 Evil with, that Robert Englund, Freddie directed. And he was super gracious and he had, I had a writing partner and we would go to his house and he would talk about all the, he'd talk all the scenes through with us. It was really kind of, I felt so kind of heard in a way by, and it was by Freddie, you know, and he was great. He was, he was a really, uh, I'm really proud to have worked with him in that capacity as a, as a writer for him. These sound like really just incredible experiences to learn on and and for the most part, sort of uh, supportive experiences too. Is there stuff that like for people coming into the business now, is there stuff about the business side of writing that you wish you had known early on? Not, you know, little things like I wish I had had a better sense of how, how much things cost, you know, and, uh, and, um, I'm sure I wrote many scripts that people would read and say, oh, we can't afford to make this. We like it, but we don't have, we don't have enough money to make it. Well, let, let me stop you there. Do you remember what some of that stuff was that like, if you looked at it now, you, they'd be like, this is, this is way too expensive for this kind of movie. I mean, I wrote, um, I wrote a script called treasure Island, the future, which was treasure Island in outer space. 
and it was just um i remember uh in the, in the book treasure island uh jack, i think it's jack the kid is trying to get the last apple out of an apple barrel and he falls inside the barrel and the, and the conspirators long john silver and them talk about you know a mutiny they're going to have and he overhears it all inside a barrel so in my futuristic version of that there was an there was a hydroponics lab that was like 20 acres long that that they were growing apples and I, and, and he there's a whole thing and so instead of shooting a kid in a barrel we have like a three million dollar sequence so with, with an apple so <clears throat> stuff like that yeah so i should have kept them in a barrel <clears throat> Which is actually better. It's better to be in a barrel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It was a good scene for a reason. Yeah. Um, do you write with budget in mind? Oh, completely. And is, it, is it something you know about beforehand? E- well, it depends on if it's a spec or something. Um, I just keep it in mind. I have enough experience that I have a sense of what the appetite is. Um, but if it's someone involved, if, if there's a studio or financer involved, I'll, I'll have a good sense of what the budget is. And that's just something I had to learn, you know, over the years. I just had to have the experience. Of, but as a director, I'm very hands-on with all that. I like to know what stuff costs and what ways we can uh, make it less without compromising it too much and all that. It's funny to hear a Brian Helgeland say, when I write on spec. <laughs> Like, is it still so hard to get stuff made or like, are you, what is the, that process like for you? Well, the stuff that you want to, that you want to make, that you want to, that you're excited enough about. Um, but finest kind was a spec. I wrote it a long time ago, but like I said, I never sold it. I sold, I got paid for it about three weeks before we started shooting it was the first time I got a dollar off of it. <clears throat> but, um, I'm doing a spec right now um, and uh, hoping that that'll be my next project when I'm done with it. Um, Yeah. And it's gotten, I don't, the business has kind of changed so much um, that I think it's a good time. uh, Maybe not this week, but it's a good time for just trying to generate stuff on your own and, um it's scary you know it's a lot of work to put in for something that um i've written many scripts that i spent all that time on and nothing ever happened with yeah it's however you skin a cat it's right it's like however you do it i i guess like the bigger question is why spec something you know if if you are someone who you know you have the relationships with studios and networks and whatever it's all you know tv and movies are all the same now anyway um but like theoretically you could go into a room and say this is the movie i want to make you know get someone on board early on why spec it versus you know pitching i think you know some of it is that i really don't know exactly what it is until i write it um not that i would write it and go oh that's not what i wanted not throw it in the trash i i think it's more that i want to i sort of want to see the movie first by writing it um and i don't really know what it is by pitching it. i know that maybe who the character is and some circumstances are and stuff like that um but 
it's just the way I like to work, really. It's more than anything. It's part of my process. I think everything becomes your process is how you how you pull this off, how you achieve this. <clears throat> you know, if I don't know what the number is, there's all those numbers about a thousand hours. And but, but I do know if I spend X amount of hours on a movie, I'll have a script at the end of it. You know, and uh it's you know, that's all a writer has really is time. Um so you just wanna make sure you're using it the best way you can and stuff like that. Well, let's, let's talk about that process for a second. Um, what does it look like when you sit down to work on a new script? What's your breaking process? What kind of hours do you put in all that? When I start to write, it's like a train leaving the station. It's like, this is what we're doing. It's like, I, I wouldn't go on vacation in the middle of it. I wouldn't, I'd hardly go up, leave my house in the middle of it. Um, and everyone's different, you know, whatever works for you is what works for you. But I get up early. I get up before the sun gets up, mess around in my office a little bit. Um, and then start once my coffee kicks in, start working and, uh, try to work all day basically until dinner. Um, and then I make dinner. It's like how I unwind. I like to cook to, cause it's the one thing you can you can control really and, and have a finished thing in, in a couple of hours. Um, it's like uh, I'm friends with Andy Walker who wrote seven and he would always say, I'm going to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich at lunch. And no one's going to tell me I have too much peanut butter on it. No one's going to question the kind of bread I decide to put it on anyways. But um, I'm a big outliner. So I outline, if I write a script, it's 60% of the time I spent, I spent outlining it. Um, and I, again, I'm not right, but it's just how I do it. And most people I know that don't outline a lot end up writing a very long first draft that they then get down into shape. And my, what I always say is because you've written a half outline, half script. Um, but however you do it is how you do it. But, um, I outline it kind of to death and, and, uh, and I think that's creative too. I, I don't think I've I've taken some spontaneity out of it. And things still happen when you're writing the pages that you didn't expect or you you think are better and you adjust accordingly. Um, but I'll start with the characters, start outlining the characters as much as I can, and then set that aside and start on the first act and start reading stuff. And depending on what it is, if I'm researching um, how things work in a specific specific field that the characters are operating in and i just start throwing it all into a, one huge document um and then i'll print it out and just cross stuff out and circle stuff and put arrows in to move stuff around and if i do that enough i'll eventually there's a movie there eventually and uh some dialogues or <clears throat> um I'll look up quote some I this what he's saying right now has to be about the truth. So I'll look up uh, I'll go into like the quote online quotes about truth. And I'll just start to chuck stuff in not as like straight dialogue but it it makes me start to think well yeah that's the nature of truth or that's the nature of this or family or whatever it is and then it helps me with the dialogue and helps me cuz movie dialogue is is 
what you wish you had said. It's not what you'd say. Like I always, when an executive would say it's such a cheap, lousy comment, when they'd say, you know, this isn't how people talk in real life. And I'd say, well, I didn't, I've never been to a good movie in my life where they talk like they do in real life, you know? And movie, movie dialogue isn't like, I wish I had said that. It's like, you know what to say because it's a movie. But um, <clears throat> it's just that. It's just a big hodgepodge of stuff. And all of a sudden, in that chaos, some order will start to form. And then all of a sudden, you'll say, all right, it's, it's from the second plot point about 15 pages in from that, I don't have anything really. And I got to concentrate on that and then just start filling the blanks in a way when you, when you, you've created a document that allows you to have blanks and then start filling them in. And then I start writing and I just sit and write every day. And some days are, I write a half a page and some days I write four pages and I don't believe in writer's block. I think, I think when you can't write and you're stuck, you that's really when you need to think about it even though you spend all day feeling like a dope you know and um and the days that you have that you're kind of flowing are rewards for the days that you sat there like a like a dope <laughs> but yeah it's it's all writing all of that is part of yeah it. and like yeah every discount yeah. those days I agree. Every bit of it is writing. Every bit of it is. Um, and then what is like, what's the impetus for you to start a project? Like, what is it that initially gets you excited? Uh, an idea, a character, a theme? Yeah. Um, sometimes it can be a circumstance. Sometimes it can be a, uh, a character. I, when I did, when I wrote the script for Night's Tale, which was also a spec, um, yeah, I had had, I had looked at a book at a, about jousting. I was just curious about it because I loved medieval stuff. I, I always find medieval life so kind of rich and fascinating. And I had bought this book about jousting and I had read that it was a sport basically in medieval Europe. And I thought, well, wow, that'd be a cool thing, to way to set a movie. But I never had an in. And I set it aside and a year or two went by and I thought, I'm going to look at because I underline in books. I'm, I'm going to just look through that and see what I underlined and what I wrote exclamation points next to. And there was something I hadn't read and it said you had to be of noble birth to compete. And the second I read that line, I knew what the, I knew what the movie, I knew I wanted to write it. And I knew I'd have a character who wasn't noble, who was pretending to be noble, but was just as worthy and all those things. But the second I read that line in that history book, I knew I wanted to, to tell that story. Whereas before, when I was just like, it's the world adjusting, I was like, that's cool, but I don't know what to do. That's really neat. I, and I love that. Like that, that's so familiar, that idea of like, this is a thing that clicks on and I know what this is and I have to tell that story. Um, I'm curious to hear about LA Confidential a little bit. Like, was that a, a job that you were hired onto? Was this something that you initiated? How did that work? So I was a big fan of James Elroy. Um, and he had he that book hadn't come out yet. Um, and he wrote a book. He when I when I first started reading this stuff, and he had written a book called The Big Nowhere. And I was I just thought, wow, what a this is like just grips you by the throat. How did he do this? And there was a book signing for that book on Hollywood Boulevard, and I had never been to a book signing. I never asked someone for their autograph, and I'm, I said 
I'm going to go to that book signing because I want to see what a real writer looks like. And I went and there were three people there. That was it. He's sitting at a table and there's three people. And I was the third. And uh, I started talking to him, you know, and he's kind of, he's a real interesting character and very, an acquired taste in some ways, but it's, but it's, but I, I adored him. And um, the movie, he had written a book called um, Blood on the Moon, which had been made into this movie Cop with James Woods. And we started talking about that and I hated the movie and I love the book and he hated the movie. And we talked about how much we hated the movie and that was it. I went home and I was like, I saw a real writer and it doesn't look like me. And two years later, Warner's bought the rights to LA confidential. And I was trying to get in for a meeting to pitch how I would do it. I, I had read the book. I knew how I would do it. And they didn't want to see me because I had done action. I had done horror movies and I had done action movies and it was like, no, no, it was basically, no, we need a real writer to do this. And I kept going and kept going. And finally, my agent got me a meeting. And on the morning of the meeting, my agent, almost in tears, called me and said they canceled the meeting because they hired somebody. And it was Curtis Hansen. And he was at the same agency as me. And I said, well, I got to meet Curtis. And they were like, we'll, well, we'll try. And they called Curtis and he agreed to meet me. And I don't, I don't know if it's too long a story, but he was in the middle of doing The River Wild, which is a Meryl Streep, Kevin Bacon rafting thriller. And he couldn't start right away. And I told him how I wanted to do it. And he's like, all right, come on. And, and, and uh, I did the first draft while he was finishing that movie, finishing the, he had started post-production. So he, he finished post-production. I had a script. And then it was just, we just started, like, we're making this movie. And uh, <clears throat> script after script after script. And finally, Warner Brothers put it in turnaround. They said, we're not making this movie. Yeah. And um, they, they, but they gave us the rights to it. So you, you guys can go try to set it up somewhere because uh, we know how much you're interested in doing it, et cetera. And we brought it to this company, New Regency, uh, Arnon Milshan, who had done a King of Comedy and a couple of kind of very interesting movies as a producer. And his distribution deal was, he, he, he completely financed the film, but his distribution deal was through Warner Brothers. So it was like a bad penny that Warner Brothers couldn't get rid of. So they, were, they got it back by default in a way. And um, we just worked on it and worked on it. And it was like nose to the grindstone. And uh, Curtis, uh, God, God rest him, was... Uh, as tenacious as they come, you know, he was like a dog, as the British would say, he was a dog with a bone. And, um, and we just willed it in a way. And then the, you know, the script went out, all the cast, like he put two Australians on that no one had ever heard of. So he didn't do himself any favors, but then he got Kevin Spacey, who was, a, you know, coming off a bunch of big things at the time, and Danny DeVito and Tim Basinger and, all of a sudden, it felt like they were movie stars because the to the totality of it all. But I don't know how that movie ever got made. And in fact, we pitched a sequel to it, Elroy and I, about four years ago, with Russell committed and and Guy Pierce committed, and we had Chad Bozeman as the new third cop. And it was set it was set in the early seventies when the Palestinian 
when Patty Hearth was in LA and they were robbing banks and everything. And it was all around that. And uh, Mayor Bradley had just been elected and Chad was going to play a young cop who worked for Mayor Bradley. And we pitched it at Warner Brothers, Elroy and I. And, and um, they said, it's, we, it's, good, it's a good pitch, but we don't make movies like this anymore. So, no, and we pitched it everywhere after that. They let us go pitch it everywhere. No one, no one wanted to buy it. Unbelievable. I, it's funny. I was thinking about that's it's a great story. Um, I was thinking about it as I was sort of looking at your your resume here, like you've gotten to make so many movies in so many different genres. I think like that that's something you had in, in common with Curtis Hanson, too. It's like it felt like you guys just loved making stuff and telling these stories. I was curious to hear about the ones that got away and that LA Confidential's sequel is a great, great story. But what are some other ones that like have stuck with you as like, this could have been great. I have a c- couple of scripts that I wrote that I think are as good as anything I ever wrote. One's called Sydney Grimes, which is, I had so I sold it uh, as a pitch actually to uh, Sony and uh, wrote the script and had different, incarnations and almost got actors and it never got made it's a cop cop drama kind of and another one called get up sunny liston which was a spec which i still own i never it's the same as finest kind which is about a guy trying to solve his brother's murder and all he has is he knows i won't go into all the details but he knows the guy who killed his brother um has a has a balance problem and can't drive a car and uses car services and he thinks he thinks he's in new york and he doesn't know and he moves to new york and he starts driving town cars for a car service hoping that one day the guy has a scar in his hand and he's hoping one day this guy will get into the car and so you cut to 15 years later and the guy's never gotten into the car and he's become a recluse and a loner and really his whole life has been ruined by this quest and he meets this woman and they, she's going to California and he agrees to go with her. And on his last day of work, the guy gets in the car. So hijinks and merriment ensue. But I always, I always thought I, I cannot write a script better than this. And, and there's no interest in it. Well, if, if Finest Kind has taught us anything, it's that these things don't go away. You know, when, when you are uh, 90 years old, you might get the opportunity. And as long as people still kill each other and there's car services, it'll never, it'll never be dated. <laughs> exactly. Perennial. Um, let's wrap up, as we always do, by asking, uh, is there anything you've seen lately that you want to recommend to folks? Anything that's gotten you excited or inspired? Yeah, I don't. And I also, I don't go to the, I don't, it's like a busman's holiday. I don't, I don't enjoy what I do. Um, I used to go to everything and I hardly go to anything anymore uh, for no reason. It's not like, oh, it's all lousy. It's, I don't think that at all. I think in a lot of ways, it's a golden age for a lot of things, but I just don't watch it. But the, well, I love tar and a lot of, I don't have to, pitch that because everyone knows what tar is and it was it was it was last year or two years ago but and this is also last year i think but it's the movie broker the japanese movie which i thought i think is fantastic i think it's fantastic and it's one of those great i i love the outlaw josie wales right because it's about a guy loses his family 
doesn't want a family and finds a family. And this movie is exactly, it's not a Western. It doesn't have Clint Eastwood, but it's the same idea. It's a, it's about a family that sort of gets put together. And I don't think you can make a finer film than that film. That's a great recommendation. Yeah. Uh, People should check it out. It was one, it's one that the emotion really snuck up on me. Yeah. And it's so, shows you what you can do with you just take four or five people and you can go anywhere with them and it's not expensive it's a it's a it's a it's a low budget film in a lot of ways but it's about so much and 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 so unexpected and it's a journey it's it's really great yeah good recommendation um brian thank you so much folks should check out finest kind it's available on paramount plus right now as of this release um thanks for joining us all right ben thank you very much